words were never spoken. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. Welcome to the most interesting show on the radio, one that offers up three things that we all need and never seem to get enough of. Hope, inspiration, and possibility. You are about to experience growing bolder, and it just might change your life. Whether you've been thinking about changing jobs, starting a hobby, taking an adventure vacation, making lifestyle changes, or stepping up to face life's challenges over the next hour, you'll find critical information and invaluable motivation. On today's program, we will hear from the former mayor of Boston, the Honorable Raymond L. Flynn. But we're not talking politics today. Instead, we're talking about his all-out mission to save the life of his 8-year-old grandson and millions more like him. Also, it's been a half century since the Beatles played their first concert in the U.S. You know who opened for them? We will talk to him in just a while, and we'll bring you an amazing weight loss story about a woman who dropped... 475 pounds. But up first, we'll catch up with Ralph Mouth from Happy Days and find out why these are his happy days, too. Amazing people, amazing stories. It's time for Growing Bolder. Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. The weekend comes, my cycle hums, ready to race to you. Is there anyone on the planet Earth that does not know that song? One of the most popular theme songs in television history, if not the. The show Happy Days ran from 1974 to 1984. has been popular in reruns ever since. The regulars on that show have become part of our modern culture. And in the years since, at least one of the stars has been growing bolder by reinventing himself. With that in mind, folks, can you guess who this is? Oh, the shark, babe, has such teeth, dear, and he shows them pearly white. Well, that's easy, Mark. It's Bobby Darren. But I, I didn't think he was in Happy Days. No, no, it sounds like him, though. Really? It's, it's not, well, it's not Potsy. It's not Henry Winkler. It's certainly not Ron Howard. It's a guy who made appearances on other hit shows over the years and a few feature films, too. And here he is, boy. He is singing and he is swinging. Mr. Ralph Malf himself, this is the voice of Donnie Most. Hey, Donnie, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing really well. Thank you so much. Oh, don't don't turn that off yet, Jason. Pop that up just a little bit more. Now, Mac, he stands just like a sailor. Could it be a voice done something rash? Man, oh man, Donnie, you, you can do this. This isn't just some little hobby. You sound great. Yeah, this is actually my first love. Um, a lot of people wouldn't know this, couldn't know this, but um, I was singing before I was acting, way before Happy Days. Uh, when I was 14, 15 years old, I was singing in this uh, nightclub review uh, with a bunch of other kids my age uh, up in the Catskill Mountains, um, uh, upstate New York. So... Um, yeah, this was something that I loved, and, and it's not just like something I decided, hey, I'm going to try this now. Um, I've loved this kind of mu- that kind of music my whole life, and a, a real passion of mine. And I don't know why I waited this long to, to finally, you know, do something about it and mount a show. But for whatever reason, the timing felt good now, and, and, I'm, and I'm doing it, and I'm just loving it. Well, you know, Donnie, we like to say it is never too late to start growing bolder. That said, um, ha- has your role as Ralph Mouth on, on you know one of the most iconic TV shows given you a platform to do what you want to do now, or in a way, do you was that a distraction, and do you wish that you had had not been on the show and had pursued this from the beginning? No, I I, I can't. I I never would say I wish I'd not done the show. I mean. There, there were so many incredible things about it and, and wonderful things. Uh, yes, when when I was done with the show as an actor, uh, there were certain challenges it, it posed for me in terms of breaking away from it. Um, and and it took a while, um, you know, to some degree. It's really got uh, gotten better over the years, I guess, with distance and time. Um, and I'm starting to get more and more roles in the but then I had it right after the show. It was very tough then. Um, but I don't think it hurt me with the singing at all. Um, I, I I was just so focused on acting and, and then directing. 
Um, and, and, you know, this kind of music, the standards and the, the great American songbook and the kind of music that I love, which was, you know, Sinatra and Darren and, 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 and Nat King Cole and Dean Martin, um, you know, it wasn't really, it hadn't had a, its uh, a resurgence as it has in the last, say, five to ten years with artists like uh, Harry Connick and Michael Buble and even Rod Stewart did, you know, several albums of standards. So I, I think um, back then it, it just didn't seem uh, as as accessible to do, you know, and and um, I don't know. I, I, but I don't think the show hurt me with singing at all. And, um, uh, you know, the biggest challenge it did pose was breaking away as an actor. So, Donnie, how how do you deal with that? I mean, what, you know, we all sort of get that. You know, we, we, we it's the old, like, Bob Denver Gilligan thing. He's done once he's Gilligan. That's all he's going to be. You've had some great roles where you were, I mean, everything from a very evil, maniacal person since then to, you know, really branch out a bit. How how did you deal with Happy Days coming to an end and rolling you right out of the machine? Um. You know, I have to be honest. It was it was a difficult time. Um, part of and and what added to it was the fact that I told my agents at the time that because um, I left I left the show four uh, four years before it ended. Um, my contract was up after seven seasons, and and Ron Howard and I, for various reasons, decided uh, not to renew. Um, so, so the show still ran for four years afterwards. But I, and and I told my agent that I didn't want to do um, another series at that time, that I, I was mainly looking to try to do movies and theater. Um, but no, I didn't want to do another, you know, uh, episodic kind of show. So I kind of made it even tougher on myself because um, it was very difficult back then to for somebody in a sitcom to, to go into film. Um, it's not like today where there's, a bit more of a bridge between the two mediums back then. Um, you know, it was, re- it was almost impossible, but I was headstrong. I was only about 27 years old and, and I wanted to do film and theater. So, um, it was a rude awakening. I mean, knew, I knew it was going to be tough, but I didn't know it was going to be that tough because I, I, I literally, uh, after the show, I, I was with a very big agent and I, I went six months without, I couldn't even get an audition. You know, I mean, they wouldn't even, let me come in and audition. So um, I went even longer than that, but I left that agency and went somewhere else. And so it was it was a rude awakening, and, and um, dealing with it, um, I, 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 it, that would probably take a lot longer than we have <laughs> to talk about how I dealt with it. But um, luckily I had a wonderful uh, woman in my life who I married, and, and that made a huge difference. Uh, otherwise, I don't know how I would how I would have dealt with it, but um, but I'm but I I came out you know I came out fine. I, I wound up doing a lot of theater across the country, and um, and that was great. And and then eventually I started saying, okay, you know, I'll, I'm going to do television. Um, you know, back then it was different, and um, uh, there weren't the kind of dramatic great dramatic shows that there are today. So that's where I had reluctance back then, but I started doing TV and and uh, more theater and you know and and then I started directing and and um, and that opened up a whole new area for me and 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 then the acting role started coming back again more and more. So you know it was a bit of a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster for all of us, folks. We're talking to uh, you know Donnie Most, formerly Ralph Malf on uh, on Happy Days, and and after all of that. Uh, now pursuing his first love, his true passion, uh, and, and that is basically singing the Great American Songbook. Donnie, tell us a little bit about the show you're now touring uh, called Singing and Swinging. How far do you want to take this? That's a great question. Um, when I started out, I was doing it. I said, you know, I'm going to do this because I love it, and and I just want to, I just want to do it, and and we'll see where it goes. And I wasn't thinking too much beyond that. But then the response has been so great. Um, you know, I started out here in L.A. doing it in several uh, jazz clubs, and um, then I went to New York and did it at uh, a great place, a club called 54 Below, and we sold out, and they uh, had me back again just recently. So now I'm starting to, like, you know, as it's been growing and, and, and 
great reviews and great response from audiences, I'm like, you know, thinking, well, I, you know, I'd like to keep doing this and, and doing it more. I'd like to do it more and more and, and, and maybe bigger venues or not, I'm not talking huge, but just, just, I I just want to do it in a way where, um, uh, more and more people are aware of what I'm doing so I can keep doing it, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, and then I'll see, I, I don't know how far, um, but as long as I'm enjoying it this much and, and, uh, able to make it work financially, you know, because, uh, I like to do it with at least like a seven piece band and, and, and I might, I might be doing it. Um, I'm going to be doing a show in, uh, out here in LA on March 1st at Catalina's jazz club. And I might be doing it with a big 17-piece band, so, which is a major high. So, you know, financially, sometimes that can get really expensive to, with all the musicians and all that. So it has to make sense. That's why I was saying it would be nice to be able to do it in some bigger places where, um, you know, you, you're not doing it for free. <laughs> you, know? you don't want to just... Uh, although, you know, I love it so much, I almost would, you know, and, and I have done it that way at times. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. I'm I'm just having such a great time, and it's a great creative um, outlet for me. Um, and and I'm constantly working on trying to make it better, and and looking at different songs and and, and the arrangements and, and and every aspect of it I I love, and especially then getting up there with a great band and great songs and a, and a receptive audience. And it's the time it's the time of my life when that happens. Well, Donnie, you're real, you're a really interesting guy because all of us think about reinventing ourselves, and and you're just a textbook example of of how that's possible, even when you're one of the most iconic characters in our culture today. And you've also proven that it is never too late to chase your dreams. Check out more about him at donmost.net. Our thanks to Donnie Most. Up next, a weight loss story you won't believe. How a woman regained her life after weighing 475 pounds. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Our partners at Florida Blue Medicare. Providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingbolder.com slash COVID. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. This is Growing Boulder Radio with Mark and Bill, and it's time now for our Surviving and Thriving feature, because as you know, with the right kind of care and support and the right attitude, it's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in the aftermath. Well said, Mr. Schaefer, and here's a very powerful example of exactly that. It's the story of a woman who fought back against a disease that can really strike any of us. It's so prevalent that some believe it's the most serious disease of our time, and I'm not talking about cancer or heart disease. I'm talking about obesity. Cheryl Falk was a ticking time bomb, worried that her next heartbeat could be her last. I could have been dead, yes. She was morbidly obese, and she knew she had to do something for her health and for something else. You're abandoned from society. You don't fit. Not only do you not fit in the chairs, you don't fit in the stores because you don't fit the clothes. I remember my parents had to fly me to Chicago with my mother to get clothes for the school year that year I was 12 because they had chubbets. They didn't have that in Indiana where I was growing up. Over time, she got larger and larger. Then you get so heavy, you can't weigh on a scale. And years ago, when you would go to the doctor, they couldn't even weigh me. I didn't even fit on on the examining table. Before she knew it, she completely lost control. I weighed 475 pounds. 475 and dangerously diabetic. At the time, I just thought it was no big deal. Oh, they'll give you some medicine, everything will be okay. But I want to tell the diabetics out there, there there's consequences for playing around with this medicines because I've lost the vision in my right eye. 
I have two stents in my heart. I've had three or four orthopedic surgeries. The last one I had, I was 410 pounds, and they told my husband they didn't even think I was going to make it through it. Her husband was terrified. He should have been worried about himself. He, too, was overweight. But for him, there would be no second chances. I went to bed one night, and I woke up in the morning, and he was dead. That left Cheryl morbidly obese, diabetic, and totally alone. I had nobody. I had no place to fall. Families fed up with you. The doctors are throwing their hands up in the air. Who's left to help you? You don't have any confidence in yourself anymore. So what do you do? You have nowhere to fall. But you say, no. You did. I just said, I'm not letting, I'm just going to fight back. And they'll say, well, she just finally made up her mind. No, I didn't just finally make up my mind. I made up my mind when I wished on the star at 12. I did just make up my mind. Cheryl turned to an endocrinologist at Florida Hospital, Dr. Damon Tanton. What we try to do is identify the cause of the obesity or causes of the obesity uh, and we attack them. And most of those causes are actually hormonal. Not hormonal like you're thinking women's hormones, but insulin, cortisol, thyroid, vitamin D deficiency, things like that. Um, we attack those and we try to get results. We're sitting right now in a demonstration kitchen, right, which is kind of a one of its kind in Orlando. And we have cooking classes in here for diabetics and pre-diabetics. We have a full education department here with dietitians and certified diabetes instructors. So we have, we have uh, a full range of, of offerings. Just as important, they bolstered her courage to keep up the fight. I was 410 when I hit the gyms in Florida. And it was hard. I wore a big t-shirt and a pair of cut-off pants. They didn't even have shorts for me. And everybody was staring at you. Yeah, the women were going over here. But one of them came up to me in about six weeks and she said, I gotta shake your hand. And I said, why? I said, you said it all? She said, no, she says, I really respect you. You're in this gym every time there's an aerobic class and you don't play from the minute the music starts to the minute the music ends, you're there. The weight began to melt away from exercise, diet, and support, and what a difference. How much do you weigh now? Between 178 and 184. It, it's a dream. It's a dream that can be your reality, and hers and hers and his. All we gotta do is team together and fight against obesity. But that wasn't the end of her ordeal. I think the other thing we need to bring up here, though, is the need for patients that have had these remarkable weight uh, loss uh, stories to have a way to get the excess skin removed. So the surgery that we do as plastic surgeons is removal of that excess skin so that they can get their life back. They can basically have a better quality of life, not only from losing the weight, but also having this excess skin removed. Now Cheryl feels in complete control. At the age of 60, her health is better than ever. I just feel joy, like I could just, like, it's like 4th of July and Christmas, you know? Every day for you. Every day. Every day. But I still have that girl inside of me that cries because she can't wear a dress. She cries because she doesn't fit on a bicycle anymore. Do you get that there are a lot of people out there watching that say, wow, good for her. She did it. She's different than me. I've tried and I can't do it. You're no different than me because I live with an obese body inside of me every day. I have a heart for you. Don't give up. Don't think that it never can happen for you because it can happen for you. Just find a program that fits you. And when it fits you, it's like the ruby red slippers in The Wizard of Oz. Cheryl Falk found there is no place like health, and it is within reach of us all. There's hope. There's hope in obesity. You will always have the obesity gene, but there's hope, there's recovery. You know, an amazing story, and weight loss experts all agree that it does start with us. We all need to take charge of our own health. Doing that and finding the right support, the right programs and treatments will give you the best chance of success and increase your odds of living healthier longer. Remember the Beatles' very first concert on U.S. soil? We'll talk to the musician that opened for them. Can you guess who it is? You'll find out next on Growing Boulder. Cheeks are rosy, she looks a little nosy, man, this little girl is fine. Never knew a girl like a little Sheila, 
Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. If you haven't already, begin downsizing. Start the transition from accumulating stuff to getting rid of stuff. As we grow older, when it comes to things, less is more. No one ever says, I wish I didn't begin downsizing so soon. There are about 300,000 items now in the average American home, and that's just inside the home. More than 25% of people whose homes have two-car garages don't have room to park even one car inside. And that's still not enough room. Self-storage has been the fastest growing segment of the U.S. commercial real estate industry over the past four decades. At some point, we don't own stuff, it owns us. Now, I'm not suggesting that you adopt the radical minimalist lifestyle of an acerbic monk, unless that's your thing, but I am suggesting that you consider taking a step or two in that direction. Disconnect from the mental manipulation that's inflicted upon us by advertisers. Let go of the chase for material possessions. As we grow older, our attachment to things weakens and our appreciation of experience deepens. Of course, we all need the basics to be happy, but beyond that, Less stuff almost always leads to more happiness. You know, Mark. This song, I was in sixth grade when this song came Uh-oh. out, and we would bring it to, you know, everybody would, before the class started, we'd all bring records in in the morning, and nobody, and we would fight to make sure this Tommy Rowe record stayed on the turntable. All of us loved this song, and it was one of my entrees into, into rock, one of my earliest favorites way back in 1969. Hey, everybody, Bill Schaefer and Mark Middleton here, and we continue with the Growing Boulder Radio Show. It is amazing how a great song can instantly take you back to, to the feeling that you had even in the sixth grade. Our next guest is the man actually behind this song and many other hits like Jam Up and Jelly Tight, Sheila and Everybody. He's still writing, still playing, still performing. And in just a second, we'll tell you a very interesting fact about him that you probably don't know. But first, let's say hello to the one and only Tommy Rowe. Hey, Tommy. Good morning, Bill and Mark. How you doing this morning? Man, we're doing great. We're, we're so grateful for, for the work that you've done and the work you continue to do. What's it like to, to, to still be enjoying your craft, pursuing your passion at your age? You know, it's, it's something that I, I really wouldn't have expected, you know, early on in my career. In fact, I tried to retire in 2005, and it lasted about two years. <laughs> and my old buddy and band leader, Rick Levy, would keep calling me and say, you know, Tommy, they want to book you here and they want to book you there. And I'd say, Rick, I'm retired, man. You know, I'm having fun. I'm relaxing. And he kept, he was very persistent. So finally he talked me into doing some dates up in Canada in 2011. And we went up and I did three dates and it all came back. I said, man, I can't quit this. I love doing this. So here I am again, back out on the road and just enjoying every minute of it. And uh, you still have your chops. You still sing great. I, I, you know, people wouldn't think that Sinatra struggled there towards the end, but Tommy Rose still got it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I still do all the songs in the same keys. And, you know, what happened in the early days when we recorded, like when I recorded Sheila, they used to speed my records up and they to make that teen sound, you know. And 
so it became a, a habit with the producers. Every time I'd go in and do a session, they said, "Well, we got to we got to speed it up." They called it wrapping the capstan, the old tape thing. They'd wrap the tape thing, and it'd make your voice sound higher. And they had to just they had to be careful not to make it sound like the chipmunks, you know. <laughs> but they, they got kind of tried to get that happy groove in there, that real teen sound. But uh, my voice was never really that high, so. But I'm still doing the songs in the same key and uh, enjoying every minute of it. You know, not only are you a great performer, but 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 you really are a witness to the history of rock and roll. You mentioned C, uh, Sheila. That that was 1962 when you broke into the music scene, and at the time, really, no Joplin, no Hendrix, no Beatles. What was it like to 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 have a hit in '62 and then in the next few years see all of this happen? Yeah, it was. It's, been a very interesting decade of the 60s for me because that that was really the where I had the bulk of my success <clears throat> and I actually wrote Sheila when I was 14 years old wow. and uh it started out I wrote this poem about a little girl I was going to school with had a crush on named Frida so the, it, the poem was sweet little Frida you know if you see her blue eyes in a ponytail and about the same time my dad taught me three chords on the guitar so I thought you know if I could put some music to my poems maybe I could write songs you know so I did, and, you know, the song turned out to be Sweet Little Sheila, you know, if you see her blue eyes in a ponytail. So that was my first song, 14 years old, and then I recorded it while I was still in high school locally in Atlanta, and it didn't do much. It got played around Atlanta, and then when I met Felton Jarvis later on, he wanted to re-record Sheila, and he, it was his idea to put the Buddy Holly drums in it, because the original version was just two, four drums. And so he said, we got to put the Buddy Holly drums in there because – since Buddy passed away, there's a vacuum of that sound, and it's going to get a lot of attention. And sure enough, it was right. It was. It just turned out to be a huge record for me, and it kicked off my career. And basically, when Sheila was a hit, I, I really didn't know much about performing. I'd, I'd only performed with my band at fraternity parties and things around the southeast, and I never really performed on the big stage, you know. So I had to really start learning my craft after having a number one record in the world. It was it was an interesting time, and I met a lot of great people in that in the beginning there. And to go from fraternity parties to this fact that Mark alluded to in the intro about you that some people don't know, you know, in 64, the Beatles played their very first concert in the U.S. It was at a place called the Washington Sports Arena, and guess who opened that night for the Beatles? It was you, Tommy Rowe. What do you remember about that? Well, that was an interesting development. After I toured with the Beatles in 1963, Chris Montez and I were the headliners of a tour over in England. And in '63, nobody had ever heard of the Beatles, you know. Especially, me. I didn't know. I didn't know who the Beatles were. In fact, when I met them at our first meeting before our tour started, I thought they were they were our backup band. I didn't know they were an act. And so we did the tour over there. And, and you know, besides having 23 top ten, uh, top uh, chart records in Billboard and uh, six top tens and four gold records, I had this thing, uh, the distinction of being one of three American artists upstage by the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> so during this tour, they started developing their fan base, and it just got to be such a huge thing. And I, I really watched them develop during our tour. And I really think our tour was the springboard for their career because after that, they just took off. And they never were a featured act on a tour again. They were always the headliners. So when they came to America, they called my management and asked if I would open the show for them in Washington, D.C. They did the Ed Sullivan show. And they took a train down to Washington, D.C., three days later, and they did the show at the Washington Coliseum, and I opened for them there on their first American concert. And uh, it was really chaotic. It was just the way it was in England when I toured with them there. Uh, they did an interview with with some of the press, and uh, they asked them what was their favorite candy, and they said, jelly babies. Well, we didn't have <laughs> jelly babies in the U.S. We had jelly beans, and and the kids in the audience brought all these jelly beans, and they were throwing these things at the stage, you know, not, you know, as a respectful thing, not meaning to hurt anybody, but these little jelly beans, if you got hit with one, it would sting like a BB, you know. It's and, of course, of course, that's where the great hit Jam Up and Jelly Bean came from. <laughs> yeah, hey, right. Tell me what I got the idea. Well, we still have a minute or so to go. You know, you're such an interesting guy, and you've seen so much and done so many things. Could Could you leave us with, a like, a... Uh, the the Tommy Rose sermon, you know, what can we learn from life 
uh, from what you've seen and what you've been through and where you are now about what's important and what really matters? Well, you know, I think the integrity is, is the main thing. You know, being in the business as long as I have, 54 years I've been singing and performing, and, you know, all of my choices weren't great. I made some poor choices along the way, and that's, that's human. That, that happens to all of us. But what we have to do is keep is have integrity as as a human being, and in our business, whatever business we're in, to to keep our integrity at a high level, and just never give up. I mean, if you have an idea about something and you really believe in it, until it's just completely knocked down to the bottom of the rung, just keep pursuing it. Pursue your idea until you find out it'll either be huge or it'll be mediocre or it won't work at all. And then go from there. But just, you know, especially in the entertainment business, it's so difficult today. To There's so many great singers and great uh, musicians out there, and you just have to keep plugging away and believe in yourself. And I think that's probably the key, just believe in yourself, you know. And, folks, this from the one of the coolest guys in music. Make sure you go out and catch him if he comes near you on tour, which you know he will. And keep up with everything going on by heading over to TommyRowe.com. Our thanks to one of our favorites, Mr. Tommy Rowe. Me and Sheila go for a ride. Oh, 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 feel a funny inside. Then little Sheila whispers in my ear. Up next, a prolific author who will try to convince us that it is never too late to be what you might have been. This is Growing Bolder. We're so doggone happy just being around together, man, this little girl is fine. Oh, this little girl is fine. Yeah, this little girl is fine. Support for Growing Bolder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Hey folks, this is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark. That is Bill. Ordinary people living extraordinary lives. The power of someone like us. When we can see ourselves and others, that's when the excitement happens. It's a theme we touch on all the time in this program, and it's also the favorite topic of a best-selling writer who is inspiring people to change their lives with her works. We kind of dig her, Mark, because she combines her expertise in gerontology and sociology, so she brings that academic side into it. She's also the author of 30 books that deal with everything from business to spirituality to self-help and a whole lot more to Two things that she believes in are evident in the title of a couple of her books, The Power of Positive Doing, and one that we like a lot, too, It's Never Too Late to Be What You Might Have Been. So let's learn more from B.J. Gallagher. How are you, B.J.? I'm great, guys. How are you this morning? Well, we're thrilled to have you on the program because we want to talk to you about your your attitude, your philosophy, and, and how you're inspiring people all across the country. And it's a tough racket, too, because when you walk through the bookstores, there are a million self-help books out there. So what do you tell people that you're bringing to the table that, you know, maybe the others aren't? Uh, well, a couple of things. One is I, I make sure that my books are all uh, practical as well as inspirational, because, I mean, it's easy to inspire people, but then you have to give them some tools on how they can carry that into their day-to-day lives. So I, I'm really big on being practical as well as inspirational. And the other is I write short books, short, simple, accessible. You get in, you get what you need, you get out. Man, I love that. And, you know, BJ, to some extent, uh, we're swimming in the same pond here because uh, there are so many people that want to be inspired, that need motivation, that need the kind of tools that that you prevent, uh, that you that you present. I mean, doesn't it seem like there's a, really a endless appetite out there for for people looking to change their lives, improve their lives, reinvent their lives beyond a certain age? I, I think you're absolutely right there, um, and and part of it is that there's this sort of um, you know constant yearning, constant longing 
for um, for something better. I mean, no matter how good we have it, it's like, oh, there's something better. Oh, there's something different. Oh, there's something I still want to try. And it seems to be, at least in our country, it's it's pretty much universal. I can't speak for the rest of the planet, but in our country, that that sort of um, you know endless questing, it's it's invigorating. It's exciting. Let's get into some of your books. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by it's never too late to be what you might have been. Well, that's a it, it, it's a famous quote by George Eliot, who was an English writer, and um, I, I happened upon it just before I was I was coming up on my 60th birthday and, and sort of feeling like, uh, oh goodness, is it too late for me? And you know, maybe I'll never find the man of my dreams, or maybe I'll never make it to the New York Times bestseller list. And I came upon that quote, and I went, "That's right." I mean. We live a long time these days, and plenty of people have found their best success after age 60, after age 70, after age 80. And I went, that's my new mantra for the rest of my life. It's never too late to be what you might have been. Amen. Two things I got I to ask here. First of all, we know you made the bestseller list. Did you find the man of your dreams? Not yet. Never too late, BJ. Here, here we are, BJ. <laughs> Are you looking for the men of your dreams? Because uh, we're, we're sitting hey. right here. <laughs> uh, hey, variety is the spice of life. Amen. <laughs> that, that's her next book. <laughs> and, and secondly, everybody wants to find their passion, find themselves, do their thing, lead a life of significance, however you want to say it. In your experience, BJ, what keeps us from doing that? What, what's, the, what's the biggest challenge that, that, that people face that you help them overcome? Doubt, uh, self-doubt and fear. And it's, it's fear of failing, fear of looking foolish, fear of what others might say. And, and self-doubt is really another form of fear, which is, I don't know if I can do it. I don't. And so as soon as you set your goal, the first thing that comes up is fear and self-doubt. So it's really an inside job. If you can handle the, in, the insides, your emotions, your fears, your anxieties, and reach out for help to do that, then that's really what gets in your way. And, and that's not easy. I mean, it's not like you have a checklist item and you go, fear, up, handle that. I mean, that keeps popping back up almost every yes. step you take. It's like whack-a-mole. <laughs> so, so how do you deal with that? I mean, the power of positive doing talks about taking the steps, you know, little by little to get to that point. Um, I love that theme, The Power of Positive Doing, because sometimes my mind has a mind of its own. I, I can't always control my mind, but what I can do is get myself into action instead of it. I have this wonderful saying I like, action alleviates anxiety. So when I'm afraid, if I just take one step, if I just do, like I'm going to make one phone call, I'm going to write one page on that manuscript. Uh, I'm going to take a block, a walk around one block. I mean, anything to get moving, get into action, and immediately the fear starts to dissipate. And the more action, the less fear. Boy, that that is a great point. And you know, uh, BJ, kind of in the same area there. Bill and I have a little magazine called Growing Boulder Magazine, and I wrote a piece in our most recent one, the title of which is I Can't Wait for My Next Failure, uh, because it's to your previous point. Uh, we don't try things if we don't think we're going to like them, and if we fail at it, then uh, we're one step closer to getting good at it, or we've eliminated that as a possibility. So we really do all need to embrace failure and not be embarrassed or afraid of it. The one, the the biggest tool, the best tool that I use on myself is self-talk. So when fear comes up, like, oh gosh, I'm going to fail, Mike, I, I sit down, I have a little a short conversation with myself, and the question is, well, what's the worst that can happen? Like, oh my, you know, my business will fail. Okay, what's the worst that will happen? Oh, I'll run out of money. Okay, and then what's the worst that will happen? Well, I might lose my house. Okay, and then what's the worst that will happen? Well, then I'll end up homeless. Uh, I'll have to go live with my mother. And and then finally, but the final question is, is anybody going to die because of this? And if the answer is no, then it's like, oh, well, then nothing to be afraid of. In our final few seconds, BJ, and we only have 15 or 20 left, who can actually make the changes? You can. You can. But here's the thing. Nobody can do it for you, but you can't do it by yourself. 
everybody needs a team. They need mentors. They need coaches. They need friends. They need supporters. We are social animals. We need the support of other people. You folks see why we like her so much. She's a tremendous author. You're going to want to go on the Internet right now and order some of her books. Check out bjgallagher.com for more information on her and her books. Thanks so much for that shot of information. B.J. Gallagher. Up next, the former mayor of one of the greatest cities in America and why he's now on a mission to save his grandson's life. This is Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com slash podcasts. This is the Growing Boulder Radio Show. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and our next guest is a lifelong public servant who is now on a mission that promises to save many lives, none more important than his own grandson. Yeah, it really is an amazing story. He's the guy who rose to prominence and fame as the mayor of Boston from 1984 to 1993. Then he was the U.S. ambassador to the Vatican. But now, as Bill said, he's on his most personal mission ever. And of all the things that he's done, all the titles that he's had, Bill, I think grandfather must be the one that means the most to him because he has dedicated his life to trying to find a cure to help his seven-year-old grandson, Brandon. Let's find out more as we speak to Ray Flynn. Hey, Ray, how are you? Good morning, Bill and Mark. It's great to be on your program. Thanks for giving me and parents like me and grandparents like me an opportunity to tell stories uh, like my grandson, Braden, and there's so many kids like him across the United States, across the world. So thank you very much. Well, you know, we are we all benefit from people like you that have the passion, the, the interest, the desire, the means, the connections to try to make a difference, you know, for your son and, or your grandson, and by extension for, for many, many more. Tell us about Braden. Is it true that he has a condition that's so rare it doesn't even have a name? Yeah, that's true. He's born with a rare neurological disease. And, uh, you know, we've taken him everywhere uh, across the uh, country to various experts and so forth, medical experts. And, you know, I've seen the anguish and the pain on so many parents' faces that uh, have a similar situation, uh, watching their children uh, develop a lack of development uh, physically, the same way uh, Braden has been unable to develop. Uh, he has a rare disease that uh, affects his balance. He's eight years old now, and he can't really walk without falling down, and he can't talk. You know, you can imagine the dream of every parent to watch their child uh, grow into a happy and healthy youngster, playing with other kids and boys and girls, going to school, playing sports like we all have the pleasure of doing. But seeing kids like Braden and families like that uh, suffer, realize that something was wrong, physically challenged, and doctors couldn't figure out why he was not walking or talking. We took him, as I say, to various medical experts. We even took him to the National Institute of uh, Health in Washington, D.C., met some of the leading experts there, and after a week of testing and evaluation, including genetic testing, still no diagnosis or medical solutions. You know, they're, they're good doctors, they're good scientists, they're well-intentioned. You know what? We're just not spending the necessary resources to do the, re to the, do the research uh, that's necessary to find cures for people like, with, like Braden who have neurological diseases or people that we know in our own families and our own neighborhoods who have Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. You know, quickly, I, I had the opportunity of uh, of going to Africa, being very active in the AIDS, uh, HIV cause early, early on in a place called Uganda and Rakai. And, uh, and I saw the great work and the progress and the effort that was being made. I saw Bono and all those efforts. You know, that's what America reads, leads, needs right now. 
they need a uh, an effort by the international uh, entertainment community, Hollywood stars, and the movie industry to get behind this critical uh, issue that is affecting so many uh, people in the world. Medical research has to be a, a priority America, in America and throughout the world. Too many innocent children and adults are suffering and dying needlessly. Talking with Ray Flynn, and Ray, you can pick up the paper every day and find articles on new, exciting-sounding procedures and medical breakthroughs. What is it about adult stem cells that makes you believe it has so much promise? You know, that's, that's the great question. It's, um, you know, I, when I was a kid, my father was a dock worker, and he uh, was a dangerous, unhealthy job. And so many of the men in my neighborhood here um, because they were working in an unhealthy environment at the bottom of a ship and freight ships coming in from all over the world. They contacted TB. And a lot of them went to the hospital, like my father, for several years, and some of them never returned. But then all of a sudden we put research, medical research in the United States, uh, finding cures for polio, for tuberculosis, and we made great progress, great progress, and uh, we saw that in HIV. We, we've seen it in so many other areas. But in the area of neurological diseases that affect young children, uh, we've seen very little effort. You, you, you know, I know many political people, and they'll come right out and they'll tell me that we just haven't given the resources, the energy, the effort into this research that is necessary. Doctors have told me this. They said that they could do so much more if they had the necessary resources to do the research. Now, I was, I'm very well known at the Vatican. I have a lot of great friends there, including the Pope. They are involved in this issue, adult stem cell research, and they convened an international world conference on adult stem cells. And 400 of the top scientists from across the world, doctors, came to the Vatican. I was invited to participate and tell the Braden story and kids like him. And, uh, you know, it's amazing the determination, the interest uh, coming from the Vatican, coming from uh, scientists. I met a scientist named Christian Vrapo who works for StimTech International. And I was listening to the interaction that he had with uh, many of the world's scientists. And I came away from there, and I was so determined, and I was so committed uh, that there could be great progress made. It is only the lack of uh, determination on the part of the international community. So there's hope. There's there's a possibility uh, out there, uh, Bill and Mark. Uh, it's just a question of determination. Will our country get behind an effort to find cures for problems like Alzheimer's, like Parkinson's, like neurological problems that really have not received the kind of attention, both from the scientific, political, and medical community that is necessary. And that's why I'm appealing to the international entertainment community, Hollywood movie stars. They attract a great deal. I watched the Golden Globes and I said, my God, if these people ever focused on this this kind of an issue that affects so many innocent young people suffering and dying needlessly, what great progress we could possibly help have. So that's my appeal to the I love the entertainment industry, and I love the media, and I think this is the future now. I think politicians will only respond to the necessary stimulus and the incentive and public opinion that comes from from the entertainment in, industry and the respected community. Uh, of I think, think, think the medical community wants to follow. We just need some leadership in this country and this world. Well, you are certainly stepping up, Ray uh, uh, Flynn, and we certainly appreciate that. Uh, You know, you have said, we've only got 20 seconds left, but you have said the real meaning of life begins when we find a cause. What do you say to people out there in the last 15 seconds, Ray, who think they're too busy, don't have enough money to make a difference? Well, you know, I've worked with popes, presidents, prime ministers, and I was very close friends of two saints. But nothing that I've ever done in my life is as important as what I'm doing, what I think I'm doing now, helping innocent young people who are living and suffering needlessly because we just haven't given us this attention. Everybody can make a difference. Everybody can get involved. Anyone listening to this program, get involved in this issue. This is an American issue. This is a world issue. This is a humanitarian issue that needs everybody's help. Our thanks to the former mayor of Boston and ambassador to the Vatican, Raymond L. Flynn. 
And if you haven't already, check out Growing Boulder TV on public television stations around the country. And we invite you to subscribe to our one-of-a-kind Growing Boulder magazine, packed with inspiring stories, tips, tools, everything you need to help make the rest of your life the best of your life. Yeah, you know what? It's also the perfect gift for anyone you know who needs a little inspiration to get off the couch and get into life. Just go to growingbolder.com slash subscribe, where you can also sign up for our free newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook as well. Folks, we will see you next time right here. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. This fire and flaming road Using ideas as my map We'll meet on edges soon Said I Proud me heated brow Ah, but I was so much older then I'm younger than that now Half-right prejudice leap for Ripped out Stay.